Hi, everybody. Uh, we're coming to you live from the Kill Room at Lois LLC. And this is the latest episode of the Third Fridays podcast. My name is Christian Cison. I want to thank everybody for continuing to come back. Uh, last episode, we talked about cross-state jurisdictional issues uh, with uh, tried to, trying to bring it back with New York and New Jersey, uh, but obviously it has uh, various outlays that it could be stretched to. Today we're going to talk a little bit about contractors, staffing agencies, and waivers. Uh, it's going to get a little nerdy up in here, so please – Please do not turn off the podcast. Today's guest uh, is a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Chris Major, uh, and I welcome him to the program. How are you doing today, Chris? How's it going, Christian? Thanks for having me. All right. So what we're going to do today is talk about a case that uh, is going to come before the New Jersey Supreme Court. So, Chris, why don't you give us a little background and get us started? Right. So... The case here is, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, uh, Vitali versus, I'm going to say that's Shearing Plow Corporation. Um, the way I sort of got implicated in discussing this case is I'm uh, Lois Law Firm's Section 40 reimbursement guy. and uh, Well, you're more than that to us, Chris. Come on. <laughs> well, well that's, that's allegedly my primary role. And so um, the case makes a very sort of tertiary glancing mention of section 40 and uh suddenly it ended up in my lap as a result but we'll get to that so uh, i just wanted to as with any case we'll start with just a brief recitation of the facts in this one um basically the plaintiff philip vitale who we'll just call the plaintiff from here on out uh was a security guard employed by allied barton security services llc we'll just call them allied um Allied contracted to provide security services at Defendant Shearing Plow Corporation, who we'll just call Defendant. Um, and at the commencement of the plaintiff's employment and as a condition to it, he was required to execute a disclaimer waiving his right to sue any of Allied's customers for, quote-unquote, injuries which are covered under the workers' compensation statutes. While he was working at one of the defendant's facilities, he tripped over bag assault on the stairwell and sustained injury. He then filed a personal injury suit against the defendant, contrary to the waiver he had executed with his employer. Um, he had received workers' compensation benefits from Allied Barton. Um, at trial, uh, the jury found that defendant's negligence caused the plaintiff's injuries, gave him $900,000 in damages. Yikes, um, 900K, huh? <laughs> yeah, which is... Uh, Definitely more than he was probably going to get uh, just under strict workers' comp. And it's um, absolutely more than he probably deserved. <laughs> so uh, basically the defendant moved for summary judgment on the basis that the disclaimer was valid and enforceable, and uh, they lost on that motion. They appealed that decision. So um, I think the best place to begin with the analysis of what went on in this case is to look at the language of the waiver itself. Um, and I'm just going to cite the pertinent portion of the disclaimer. Uh, As a result, and in consideration of Allied offering me employment, I hereby waive and forever release any and all rights I may have to make a claim or commence a lawsuit or recover damages or losses from or against any customer and the employees of any customer of Allied Security to which I may be assigned arising from or related to injuries, and this I thought was important, which are covered under the workers' compensation statutes. 
Okay, so let's let's stop there. Let's back up the legal jargon and make it understandable to everybody here, right? Uh, we have Allied, and they are typically, during the course of their business, going to make contracts with third-party entities, right? Right. And Allied is going to have employees that are going to be involved in the carrying out of services of those contracts with the third-party entities. Yes, and something we're going to – Christian and I are going to get into a little later is um, there's actually a, a different issue going on here, which is the context of um, temp agencies and hiring comp- companies and workers' compensation in that, in that realm, but we'll get to that. Okay, so we have the waiver, right, and we have a situation where obviously the petitioner or the plaintiff in this case is – kind of foregoing that waiver, right? Because he's filing suit against the customer or someone involved with the customer, right? Right. Okay. Now, the summary judgment motion brought forth by the defendants was not granted. Yes. And it went before the appellate division in New Jersey. What did that court find? So ultimately through – typically very uh, long and flowery legal jargon, uh, they arrive at the point that it's violative against public policy, the waiver as it's written, um, and as it operates. So there's, there's a number of reasons how they get there. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is that they mentioned this um, waiver of the right to sue under Section 40. Uh, Section 40 involves uh, actions against third parties, um, Perfect example, car accident, uh, just a person outside of work. The person driving uh, obviously gets workers' compensation, like they're a FedEx delivery driver or something. Um, In addition to getting workers' comp for getting hurt while on the job while driving, you know, there's obviously just your usual motor vehicle negligence suit that accompanies that. So Section 40 gives the workers' compensation carrier or respondent, however you want to phrase it, a right to reimbursement against anything that that uh, that the worker recovers in a third-party civil suit. So what's interesting is that they mention that this waiver of the right to sue under Section 40 is violative against public policy, but then they don't go into Section 40 at all. Uh, that discussion is not particularly fleshed out here. Um, so they talk about the waiver language. They say that the fact that it's a uh, condition of employment signing this waiver um, makes it a sort of contract of adhesion, which basically uh, stems from the concept that you know these parties are in disparate bargaining positions. Um, right. I believe the law school explanation of that is the take it or leave it yeah. kind of contract, which in and of itself is a debate. Right. I mean, you have uh, you have two parties who neg- who can are not forced to enter into the contract, yet contracts of adhesion are not looked upon as favorable by any court, really. Right. And, and I, I actually, um, you know, not, not to get too far down this road, I actually kind of take issue with that. Um, yeah, and- let's get on the soapbox, Chris. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> I mean, it's, at some point, you're just infringing on people's freedom of contract. I, I mean, they're, they're entering into it knowingly. They're entering into it for a reason. And, and the court actually does sort of touch on that, where they say that, you know, even though this is a contract of adhesion, uh, he was entitled to reject this and seek other employment, but they declined to go down this road of discussing the contract of adhesion because, interestingly, the plaintiff does not allege 
unconscionability in the contract formation. Uh, he, he's alleging that it's unconscionable in the way it operates. So he's not saying that, you know, this um, contract of adhesion topic is making his very signing of the waiver unenforceable. He's saying that the waiver is unenforceable because of what it does to his right to sue. So, you know, the court goes into a discussion about how exculpatory clauses are disfavored because they encourage a certain lack of care on part of the party that, you know, they purport to remove liability from. Um, they can be enforceable if they're not against public policy. And the plaintiff raises public policy concerns. Well, he has to, right? Because yeah. if they're if it's not against public policy, then he's kind of stuck with the terms of the contract. Which, as, right? as, I, as I just got up on my soapbox about, you know, he knowingly and willingly entered into. So, I right. mean, despite so, the disparate <laughs> bargaining power. Right. So he, he's got an out here, which he has to use in order to recover. Right. Uh, and the appellate division finds that it's void against public policy, right? Right. And they, uh, the reasons they cite, uh, or well, the plaintiff raises um, two reasons. He says it's against public policy in the areas of premises liability and as against the you know beneficent purposes of the Workers' Compensation Act. So um, you know the court points out that there is no inherently risky behavior involved in what he's doing here. This is not an assumption of risk case. This is not one of those things where you know. Um, you go on the ice to play hockey, you're pretty much accepting you're going to get body checked at some point. No, this is just a guy who's walking around property. So we're subject to regular premise li premises liability here. Right. Tell, tell that to every employee that works for every other employer, right? <laughs> Everything that they encounter in their job is an assumption of the risk of taking that job. But again, now I'm getting on my soapbox, uh, but we have, we have an, an appellate division ruling, and if it's void against public policy – the Supreme Court could have just let it stand, right? I mean, why even decide to hear this case at all if there is uh, an option for them to just deny certification? Yeah, and, and this was something you and I had actually um, discussed uh, somewhat at length. It's, it's interesting that they granted certification on this, right, because uh, – you wouldn't think that public policy is sort of a, a hairy area in which to make law. Right. Give uh, a mouse a cookie and then – He's going to ask for a glass of milk. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting that instead of just letting this stay confined to what, you know, the appellate division said, they're going to somehow rule on it. And we can speculate as to what they're going to rule on, but um, what, what you and I came up with, Christian, is that – we think this this issue of um, you know the temp agency to hiring company relationship uh, in the world of workers' compensation is something that really hasn't been explored um, and and in fact is not even addressed by statute and this is you know the topic that you mentioned at the outset of um, this podcast, which is uh, the general contractor to subcontractor relationship and how that plays into workers' comp. And and I think you said there's a specific application of that in New York. Right. So it's it's, it's important to a lot of our clients currently, this this whole, uh, you know, in New York, you, you'll hear of general special being thrown around. Uh, and in New Jersey, uh, it would be the special employer doctrine. Is that what it's called? Right, which is something distinct from the uh, subcontractor to general contractor analysis. So there's actually um, 
the Workers' Compensation Act um, 34 colon 15-79, which we'll just call Section 79, um, it specifically addresses the situation of a subcontractor to general contractor. Um, and basically, just obviously I'm paraphrasing here, um, it, it says that when a subcontractor does not have workers' compensation insurance uh, and their employee gets injured, um, the general contractor can be liable for workers' compensation coverage. And Section 79 just addresses that specific situation. And, uh, you know, we um, recently looked into this topic a little more uh, internally uh, and we found that this is an area of the law that actually has not been addressed. So you have Section 79, which talks about this general and subcontractor relationship, but uh, there's a number of different cases that just sort of narrow this definition. See, uh, I, I told you you were more than just a Section 40 superhero. <laughs> yeah, I, I also step in with uh, legal research as, as needed. Um, but, you know, there's uh, one that we have, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct, uh, Brigadier versus Riemann. Um, so they defined what contractor meant under Section 79. And it, it's Brigadier, the decision, stands for the essential proposition that the term contractor under 79 has the limited definition of one who contracts directly with the owner of property for construction or improvement or repair or work to be performed. So a subcontractor in Brigadier is basically someone who's undertaking to do work for which someone has already contracted to do work. They're stepping into the shoes or the general contractor is farming out the work to somebody uh, more qualified or more specialized to do it. Um, now this is a distinct analysis from this special employer doctrine, which basically if, and there's a test carved out uh, through case law, basically if the test is met, the worker can be held to have two employers. Um, and I'm going to, this is actually where we tie back into Vitali here. Uh, the Vitali decision actually has a pretty, uh, pretty uh, concise summation um, of this special employer doctrine. And they lay out the factors of it and uh, the special employer, i.e. the second employer, or in the example we're talking about right now, the hiring company that's hiring from the temp agency, uh, they're sort of the second employer in this instance, right? Um, the test laid out is the special employer is liable for workers' compensation only if the employee has made a contract of hire express or implied with the special employer the work being done is essentially that of the special employer. The special employer has the right to control the details of the work, and they discuss two additional factors that may also be considered, uh, whether the special employer pays the employee's wages and whether the special employer has the power to hire, discharge, or recall the employee. Right. So we talked about how it almost comes full circle, and, and that segue was so seamless, it was almost as if we didn't practice that, right? Oh, no, no practice at all. <laughs> so what we have here is we're bringing it back to Vitaly because in trying to predict or figure out why the New Jersey Supreme Court would want to look at this case instead of letting the appellate division's opinion stand is this – 
I don't want to say, I guess, difference, but well, yeah, there, you know, the difference between contractor and temp agency, the relationship between those specific industries and making a more clear delineation between them, maybe not an intention of the Supreme Court in doing it, but an unintended consequence of hearing this case may actually be to make Brigadier uh, Blessing, uh, Briggs. Briggs, all those other all those, cases. All, right. <laughs> just, just go down the line. Those cases that may not necessarily be binding on the difference between those industries make them more persuasive or maybe even make them binding, right? Actually having to comment on that, even dicta could make that delineation or the difference between those two industries stronger. Right, and and I think that's the um, that's the collateral consequence the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, runs the risk of touching on here in uh, granting cert on Vitali, uh, because here on one hand you have uh, a type of coverage that you know the New Jersey legislature has specifically contemplated. Right, you have Section seventy nine which talks about subcontractor to general contractor. Uh, the special empl- employer doctrine is not. Uh, yeah, you know, a recitation of something prescribed by statute. This is the court filling the gaps. This is a situation where you go, huh, we have a temp agency, we have a hiring company. Uh, at the time when the injury happens, who's liable? Is it, is it, the, person who's, you know, is it the person who's hiring uh, the contractor to perform the work, or is it the person that's farming out the contractor to other companies? And so in ruling on Vitaly, the New Jersey Supreme Court may actually offer us uh, a little bit of uh, clarification on this whole temp to hiring agency distinction versus the subcontractor to general contractor under Section 79. And, and actually, while we wait for that, right, because it's not like it's coming down the pipeline tomorrow, what I like about this type of case is it actually forces us to get our hands dirty. You know, like we have to actually do the digging and figuring out what type of relationship. Uh, clients have with their customers, uh, what type of relationship is born out of that relationship that involves the petitioner or the claimant, and how those uh, kind of react with each other to kind of form the basis of a defense. And I think, you know, uh, you, know you talked about that, that uh, test in New Jersey. New York started to go along with that test. More recently, they're focusing on who has the ability to direct and control that that employee. Uh, it kind of makes it easier for the courts to make a decision on general special. But it's kind of uh, – this whole topic is actually something that we enjoy because we can actually go in there, uh, really provide value in figuring out where the case stands before it goes to trial as opposed to you know you're more – commonplace uh, accept or deny case based on whether the accident happened, right? Right. And, and in the context of uh, defending against, uh, you know, uh, possibly meritless workers' compensation claims, you know, this general uh, or special employer doctrine uh, could represent something of an all-or-nothing proposition in the sense that, you know, if this hiring company is not a special employer under the test, well, I mean, in New Jersey, uh, what the court, the appellate division is seeming to say in Vitale and what they've carved out in other cases is that if you don't qualify as a special employer, you're not liable for compensation. And what's interesting is how the context of if the temp agency is uninsured, like Section uh, 79 contemplates for uh, subcontractors, 
then what happens? Then what happens if the hiring company does not qualify as a special employer or the temp agency just happens to lack insurance as contemplated by Section 79, but as we've established, Section 79 only addresses uh, general and subcontractors very specifically in a very specific situation. Okay. So a lot of information there to digest. Um, So what we have now is Vitaly coming up to the Supreme Court. If you had to guess... Right, you know, we usually play guess the outcome here. It's not really relevant to this particular episode, but I, you know, I, I kind of want to make a game out of this because, sure, who loves who loves games, right? Me. Um, what is the Supreme Court going to say about Vitali? So it, this is a this is an interesting one. It's it's kind of tough to forecast, right? Because on the one hand, you have this sort of hairy issue of public policy, which uh, you know, as we've seen before. Uh, state Supreme Courts are hesitant to dive into for obvious reasons of making law based on, you know, oh, well, this doesn't feel right, essentially. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if you're not going to rule on the entire public policy decision or, or discussion, which is basically the entire basis for the Vitale uh, Appellate Division's decision, uh, why are you granting cert? So it's, it's interesting because I, I think they're going to take a cop out and, and just sort of say, you know, we agree that, you know, you can't waive liability via these um, third-party waivers ahead of time as a condition of employment uh, because you don't know what you're waiving. Uh, that's one discussion they go into is that, you know, when um, the plaintiff is signing this waiver, it's, uh, it's protecting an as-yet unidentified third party, right? And in that sense, Allied's customers are third-party beneficiaries of this contract. And, you know, they don't even exist yet. They're as yet unknown. So, first of all, the employee has no idea what they're waiving. They, they don't know the situation that could arise in the future. So there's the public policy concern there. Secondly, you can't waive under any circumstances. Um, and, you know, we're workers, compensation attorneys. Feel free to correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, Christian. But I don't believe you can contract around intentional or reckless conduct under any circumstances. Right. I don't even think that's just a workers' comp thing. That's yeah. Just... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's this issue that uh, I actually found kind of interesting. But, you know, as we've established, that's because I'm a nerd. Um, me too. It's okay. <laughs> Good company. So they talk about um, how you can't waive liability for the intentional or reckless conduct. And... You know, what the defendant seeks to argue is that since the waiver addresses claims covered by the workers' compensation, you know, it specifically says any claims that would be covered by workers' compensation, and the Workers' Compensation Act in New Jersey excludes claims for intentional conduct, well, you know, then this, this waiver is in accordance with the Workers' Compensation Act. It's not, re- it's not you know, permitting intentional reckless conduct and beyond what you know, the Workers' Compensation Act forbids. And the court struck down that argument, saying the definition of intentional and reckless conduct for purposes of the Workers' Compensation Act is way narrower. I mean, it's, it's got to be this situation where I think the language they use is substantial certainty of bodily injury or death. I mean, it's, it's essentially got to be an employer sending their employee to, like, a known death sentence. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so the context of tort intentional and reckless conduct, as, you know, most of the world knows it, is uh, broader. And, and if you, ha- you can have a situation where this waiver 
waves, claims to waive intentional and reckless conduct and waive stuff beyond the Workers' Compensation Act, even if it says, well, this only applies to injuries that would be covered by workers' compensation. So I, You might I, even say in the wrong hands it encourages intentional and reckless conduct. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, or <laughs> if we're talking – we want to be really dramatic about it. Well, it's funny that you say that because as the Vitali court repeatedly makes the point – you know, these waivers encourage a, quote-unquote, certain lack of care, uh, as if people are going to, you know, start laying barbed wire on the floor in the dark for contractors on their property. It's just um, a simple prank. Get over <laughs> it, dude. <laughs> yeah, we do that here all the time. Um, so, you know, it, it, to circle back to the question, which, again, I went off on another tangent, um, I do think they take the cop-out approach. I do think they say... We agree with the analysis. I mean, tort, intentional, and reckless conduct is broader than workers' comp, intentional, and reckless conduct. And you can't waive that even if you try to tie it into the scope of workers' comp. And you can't, you know, you can't waive uh, injuries that aren't – you have no idea what they could be based on this whole premise liability, premises liability argument. I think they say we agree with this analysis. The reason, and I, again, I'm just speculating, that they may have granted cert is because, as you, as, I, as you and I have established over the course of this podcast, this is a relatively unsettled area of law. Uh, there's a lot of collateral implications that can come from a New Jersey Supreme Court decision on this particular issue. And to that extent, um, and, and here comes the nerdiness again, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to see where this leads. There it is. <laughs> I actually agree with you, and I want to add this caveat, right? Because if you're grant, if you're granting certification to hear a case that was determined based on a public policy argument, you can almost almost feel the decision coming down in a way to restrict it to that particular fact pattern, right? right. Think about extending that public policy argument to all different types of industries, that would create so much more litigation, which the courts certainly do not want. And I actually think about uh, comparing a temp agency to a more sophisticated industry, right? Because if you're talking about a waiver being uh, a contract or a term of adhesion, you can't really make that analysis when you have – uh, let's say a situation where parties contract for years and the you know employees continually waive this and they sign paperwork saying that I'm not going to do this consistently over and over again for the life of a long period of time. You can't then go back after years of doing so and say, oh, well, it's a contract of adhesion, right? It has to be restrictive to this particular fact pattern, and I think that's a big reason why certification uh, was granted by the Supreme Court in this case. Right, and, and I think that that's something that um, you know the Vitali Court touches on too. Is or well, the defense in making their argument attempts to touch on is like, hey, these sort of waivers are standard practice in our injury. There are competitive edge. You know, our our, our clients are or our customers expect this. And so, as as you pointed out, you know, any sort of decision on these on, on public policy as applied to these sort of waivers uh, could have this ripple effect across uh, more areas of law than just workers' compensation. Uh, now, I will add just as a small side note: selfishly, I hope they dive into the Section 40 issue uh, more than the appellate division did because. 
Uh, I, I'm interested to hear the analysis on um, how Section 40 is implicated in this. Beyond the obvious, oh, uh, Section 40 permits, well, it doesn't actually permit third-party suits. It permits a lien in third-party suits. But, I mean, beyond just saying that, you know, waiving the right to sue uh, goes against Section 40. The court doesn't really dive into that, and I would be interested to see if that issue is mentioned at all. Okay, so do you hear that, fellow Lois LLC employees? When you see Chris hovering over the next couple issues of the Law Journal, just let him be, <laughs> right? Let him read and delve into this. He'll probably explain it to you in a really, really excited tone. <laughs> so that's all the time we have. Uh, today for this episode of Third Fridays, we don't have time to bring Greg Lois on. Sorry, bud. Uh, maybe next month. But Chris, uh, my Section 40 superhero and more, thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, this was fun. I think we'll have to have a repeat episode once that Supreme Court decision comes out. But for Chris, uh, this is Christian Cison reminding you guys to defend from day one.